I bring grace, peace, mercy to you from God, our Father, Lord, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of my, um, one of my favorite things uh, in life right now for me, I, if you don't know me very well, my name is Stephen, first of all. Um, I am, I'm a single, unmarried dude, no kids, 30 years old. It's a good life, <laughs> bachelor life. But here's the deal. I love being Uncle Stevie. I have a brother who's five years older than me, and he's married, and they have three kids. And my two nieces and my nephew, I love being Uncle Stevie so, so much. And one of the things I love about being Uncle Stevie is, is they, they, they live six months, they live 3,000 miles away. I'm no, I'm joking. This is on camera. Yikes. No, but I have this fun experience where I only get to see my, my family really twice a year, right? Because I'm from Michigan originally, and that's where they all live. And um, I go back twice a year about, summer and winter. And it, it's painstaking, to be honest. I, I, I joke about it, but I hate living so far away from them. I love them so much. Um, but one of the things that's neat about that experience is, is like being far away and then coming back and being like, who is this, right? Kind of seeing them grow up within a minute, like having, not being around them all the time, I get to see these big growth spurts, if you will, in their lives. And, and it's each and every time I go home, they do things or say things where I just get that moment. I think maybe you do as parents or sometimes your kid says something just the way they say it, or they say a phrase for the first time, and it's just, who are you, <laughs> right? Like, who is this kid? For, like, for instance, this past Christmas, my, my nephew Wyatt is teaching me all about gravity, and he's four or five years old, and like, I don't know about, I just know what, what's up there will come down, basically. But he's telling me about equation, like, God, how do you know this? Who, who, who is this kid, right? In very many ways, that sort of experience in life, who is this person, who is this kid, that has sort of been our sermon series uh, through this season of Epiphany or this time after Epiphany. Epiphany, that, that word, that, that, that understanding of coming to a new understanding, a realization. And so for us in this, in, this, in, in this church at Christ Lutheran, we've been looking at this series of texts from the Gospels where we ask that question, what child is this? You know, this child that's born on Christmas Day that we all sell, the little cute guy and the baby Jesus in the manger. What child is this? And what was fun is last week I got to preach to you, right? And, 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 and this week I didn't really expect it, and I'm preaching with you. And, and last week, the story that we saw was the 12-year-old boy Jesus. If you were here um, last week, you might, may, may remember that, or you heard this, where 12-year-old Jesus is schooling these like, religious scholars in the temple of his day. They're amazed and astonished, totally confused and bewildered. Who is this kid, right? And so today, today we get to this, uh, this another, we're flash forward in time, basically. With 12-year-old Jesus, now we're at 30-year-old Jesus, which is really interesting. 30-year-old Jesus. And, and where we kind of peer in today in the story of Jesus is kind of right at the beginning of his teaching uh, uh, ministry. At the very beginning of his campaign, if you will, his good news train that he's about to go around all of Israel and Galilee and start preaching good news uh, on behalf of God on high. And this is the very beginning. 
okay? And I kind of want to just set the scene for it. I want us to just sort of think about what is going on in this text, because it's, to me it's fascinating. It challenges kind of things that I've thought I've known about Jesus, and it also, by the end of today's message, I hope we get to kind of the thing that actually troubles me most about being a Christian, actually, all right? So, so first of all, um, where we look at what, what, we, what we find in kind of this beginning, what troubles or kind of challenges what I've always known about Jesus is if, if you've kind of hung around his story before and if you've read through the Gospels or if you've been around churches and you've heard plenty of sermons, you know that Jesus, there was no neutral posture towards Jesus. People either loved him or they hated him basically, Right? That's kind of what we see throughout his whole biography, is that the way people responded to him was either through just worship and adoration, falling on their knees, claiming him as Lord and following him. Some people in the middle, a little lukewarm, like, I don't know about this guy. And a lot of people, though, too, that, that, that just totally hated him in the end, wanted to see him dead, right? But today, when he begins, notice how he begins. He begins with a bang. Everybody loves him in the beginning, right? Did you catch that? The Spirit of the Lord takes him out. He goes to Galilee. He starts preaching, we're told, all throughout Galilee, and and he's responded to so well. Like, people are talking about him. This Jesus guy, this this guy's awesome. He's doing signs and miracles. People are spreading the news all about him. And then today, he shows up. Where does he go? His hometown. His hometown congregation. I think of my hometown congregation back in Richmond, Michigan. It's this small town, 3,000 people. It's like a farm town still in 2022. Like it's still a farm town. It's amazing that it's still like that. And, it, and it's a small little church. And, and I think about uh, Pastor Doro and Pastor, like I would never want to do this there, to be honest. <laughs> like not once. I would not want to preach there. Uh, just there's something about being amongst those people that know Stevie, right? That know oh, Jesus. So here Jesus is. He's in his hometown. He's in his home. And it's a small town, mind you. Nazareth is like, when we were back in Israel, a few of us, uh, this uh, congregation every now will send trips to Israel. And, and there's some people that are starting to bug to do that. And I, I think we should get that going as soon as we can. But when we go back to Israel and you see Nazareth, it's a huge town today. It's gigantic. I mean, it's massive. But back then, you're only talk, you're talking as big as like the campus of Christ Lutheran, really. You're talking like six extended families that live there. Not many folks. So they, they know this guy that's showing up. And we know this is a part of Jesus' custom, it tells us, yeah, that as was his custom, he stood up to read. So what is Jesus doing in his hometown, though, in his hometown congregation? He's giving a sermon, right? That's what he's doing. He's giving a sermon. This would be normal in this synagogue sort of environment. They would have a reading for the day, and there would be a rabbi who would give a sermonic sort of commentary on that reading. And so Jesus is doing what we're doing right now. Isn't that cool? But here's the difference. Jesus' sermon's like five words. It's like what your heart's desire every morning coming to church is. Like, please, God, don't let him just keep going on and on and on. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is so great, isn't he? Right? 
Just another example of how don't let the Christian ruin Christ for you, right? The great preacher. He gives this five-word sermon, basically, or I don't know if I didn't count it. It it gives this very short and sweet and straight-to-the-point sermon. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, right? And did you hear the scripture that he read, though, from Isaiah? What's remarkable is that, what's the response to this sermon? They love it. They think it's great. They think it's wonderful. They are right on board with Jesus right now, which is weird because you know what happens at the end, right? So, like, the story, it it, it starts off with Jesus beginning this whole teaching ministry. They like him in the beginning. In the middle, after a sermon, they love him. They're all about him. But by the end, they're trying to kill him. So what is going on here? And what's remarkable is what he announces in his sermon is not what ticks them off. Because if you look at the text, the Isaiah text that Jesus is reading off of and commenting off of for that Sunday, it is, it's the messianic job description. It's the job description of what these people were looking forward to. They were looking forward to the one, the one that Yahweh would send one day. This is what they would tell their kids at night, that one day Yahweh will send us one, one on his behalf that will conquer and rise up and bring us, bring us back to to prominence, back to being recognized as God's holy people, being lifted and exalted on high as his image bearers, that there will be one that will do this. And Jesus announces to these people, it's happening. Are you ready? It's happening in me. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus' announcement, his sermon is, I am the Messiah. Which is sort of like, that's what every sermon kind of boils down to being, usually. Like it should be at least. That Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, right? But the people, right? The people, they love it. They're on board. It's as if they're like, let's go. When we start, Jesus... But what is it, this is, and, and this is where it gets to the thing that actually, I would say, it bothers me or challenges me the most in faith, and I think it challenges a lot of us in the faith of being a Christian. And it's exactly what we see, what ticks these people off in the end. Because what ticks them off is not that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, What ticks them off and and makes them reject Jesus in the end is that what Jesus does is he points out to them that all along, the the God, the creator God, the God who, who made the promise all the way back in the Garden of Eden to do that thing that you tell your kids, he's talking to them, right? That God has been loving all of the wrong people. That's what ticks them off. That God points out to his hometown congregation that the one that they're looking forward to is coming to people that don't necessarily look like them and don't necessarily fit into their categories of the people of God. He points to two examples from the time of Elijah and Elisha. Both are Gentile pagans. The widow in Zarephath, she is a poor widow Gentile. 
the lowest of her time in society. She is as poor as poor can be. She's exactly, she's poor how we think of poor today, I guess you could say. We think of poverty in a very materialistic, economical way, right? If you're poor, it means you ain't got no money, kind of, right? But when we're talking about poverty, especially like in the Greek and during Jesus' time, poverty, it, it, it means so much more than just economic status. Because, to be honest, everybody was economically poor in Jesus' time. Like 99% of them were all, they were all dirt poor. So poverty meant it had to do with your social standing, it had to do with your religious standing, it had to do with how people view you, Right? And so Jesus points out one, he points out one from the prophet Elijah, one who is very much fits our categories of poor. But then he points out Naaman, who, who materialistically was not poor. He was a rich, wealthy man. He was a jerk, though, and he was a murderer. And he, what Christ is pointing out, that God, the true God, has come for that person. And come for the the outcast and the weak and the low. And not just that, but the sinner. The person that you might think is the furthest away from the grace of God. That is the person that the Messiah has come to proclaim good news to. I don't know about you, but I struggle with that. Because if I'm honest in my life, there are people... (laughs) There are people that I feel like have done things to me or to my family or to my friends or to people I love that don't deserve that. (laughs) There there are people that have have done things to you that in in one sense, we might, if we might be honest, we might feel like they they don't deserve God's forgiveness. And I am in this, this morning, I do not want to take away from any of the hurt or, or, or harm or anything that you've ever felt by what someone's done. Because just, God has, God is a God of justice, so he does deem what is wrong, wrong. But I do think that as Christians, we are called by our Savior to love those that we find most deeply unlovable. And while Our old Adam, that sinful state of us, finds it so difficult to do that at times. I do think it's what's best for you. To find a way to heal and forgive the people that have most deeply harmed and hurt you. Because at the very least, what it does and what it should do is it should teach you how inexhaustibly, how immeasurably your God actually loves you. It's why I think, like, I call it the Jonah complex. (laughs) Because if you know the story of Jonah, right? Who knows the story of Jonah? Jonah and the the whale. Those stinking vegetables. The veggie tails. They taught you it was a whale this whole time. When it not, it might be. It might be. But it's not necessarily. It's a fish. And it's not a bad fish. You know, the, the whale, the fish is actually a measure of grace from Yahweh. It's saving Jonah. So the story of Jonah, Jonah's a prophet for Israel, okay? It's an awesome story. You can read it within like 10 minutes when you go home today. It's only five, four or five chapters. You go home, uh, Jonah is a prophet, and he's called by Yahweh to go prophesy, to give a sermon to the, the city of Nineveh, which 
some commentators, they'll say it this way. That is like a, 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 uh, a Jewish rabbi called to go preach to Nazi Berlin in like 1935. Nineveh is, is just the complete opposite of who should be loved <laughs> from Israel's point of view, okay? So Jonah's called to go preach a sermon or else they're going to be destroyed if they don't turn and repent Nineveh, right? So Jonah doesn't want to do it doesn't want to do it at all. So he goes the opposite way. And that's where there's this storm and then he goes over the, the side of a ship and then this whale comes and gobbles him up. A fish comes and gobbles him up. It saves him from drowning. It's God's act of salvation towards Jonah. And then spits him back out on dry land and Jonah has this sort of change of heart at first. So he goes to Nineveh and he preaches a very short sermon. It's like five words. Amazing. Just like Jesus. And Nineveh actually listens. Darn it, is what Jonah says. Nineveh actually listens and they repent and God doesn't destroy them. And the story ends, though, with a sour, sappy Jonah on the outside of the city gates. And God sends this little worm to eat up this tree. Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to be loved by Yahweh. But see, here's the deal. What I think Jonah teaches us, and what I think Jesus teaches us in this act of loving the people and forgiving the people and loving our enemies, if you will, what I think what he's teaching us is, is really how much he actually loves us. Because if you, for just a second, you take what that person or those people did to you, whatever it was, like, and however horrible it might have been, and if you take whatever drove them to that, whatever you think drove them to that. Whatever character traits, whatever flaw in who they are as a human being, what is it that, why, why are they flawed the way they are? Is it their selfishness? Is it their pride? Is it their ego? Is it their greed? Is it their lust? Whatever they did, whatever drove them towards the action they did, whatever that character trait is, it lives just as much in you as it lives in them. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we ourselves are selfish and greedy and lustful and angry, and we hold grudges, and we're jealous of one another, and we do all of the same, and we beat people up, and we throw people out. We have our categories of who are the good people and who are the bad people, but if we acknowledge, as what we're called to acknowledge as Christians, that no one is without sin, and that we have all fallen short, we should see that the fact that God loves the person that we dislike the most and hate the most that shows how much he actually loves you. Because you, in your state, all on your own, are an enemy and totally reject God. If it's just up to you, you're out in this world on your own. And you're out for yourself in this world on your own. You can't help it. And so I think Christ calls us into this difficult work of loving people that we might think are unlovable. And he doesn't ask us to do that alone. What he does is he walks with us through it. And he guides us through it. And I think one of the ways in which he guides us through it, the, the best way, is it's simply through his word, his, the scriptures. 
where today, like we see this account, this story of Jesus sort of correcting his hometown on their expectations of who this God, this anointed one, this Messiah will be. Not someone just for the insiders, if you will, but someone who blows the categories wide open and reaches out and proclaims liberty to those on the, who we might consider the outside as well. And so it's sort of my prayer for us this week is that we think of those people that we find to be completely unlovable. And instead of you trying to muster up the lo- your love for them, recognize the love that your God has for them first. Start there and work with Jesus, not just toward him. He's with you right now, working with you. Because the beauty is this, is that though he's rejected here, this rejection of Jesus in his hometown is simply a foreshadowing and a foretaste of the rejection that we're going to see all throughout and especially at the very end of his story, if you will, of the story of Luke. Where Christ is rejected fully by his people and not just that, but we see this turning away from the, we just sang that in, in how deep the Father's love. The Father's face turns away. Where Christ on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Christ took on all rejection so that you could be totally accepted in God's eyes and so that you could receive the love that blows open categories. That you, in your sinful state, were on the outside, but because of Christ, you have been brought to the inside. That's my prayer for you this week. That this love of God that surpasses boundaries and categories, that it wells you up, that it shapes you, that it forms you and inspires you to live your life in pursuit of Christ's call. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, We praise you and thank you for the work of your son on the cross. Him taking away our guilt, our our sin, and our shame. Taking away all of that which separates us from you. Lord, your love for us, let that be our guiding light this week. Let it shape our hearts and our minds so that we desire your ways and your will in our lives. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.